Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the October 2023 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook and discussion of Is China an Imperialist Country? Considerations and Evidence by N.B. Turner et al. from 2014. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe, and consider supporting on Patreon or buy me a coffee at patreon.com slash socialismforall or buymeacoffee.com slash socialismforall. There's links to Patreon and buy me a coffee in the video description. So this piece is pretty recent, dated March 20, 2014, and you can find it at red-path.net. We'll put a link to the text in the video description as usual. And I just want to note that we started to read this text in the most recently recorded live stream, number 108, so you might want to go back to that also, see how it ties in with other concepts, and catch some of my previously recorded comments. So we begin the text with a little bit of a brief forward paragraph. It says, whether or not China is now a capitalist imperialist country is an issue on which there is still some disagreement within the world revolutionary movement. Commenting, I think that in the last nine and a half years, not much has changed on that particular topic. When I did a poll on that topic a couple of years ago, basically the responses were almost evenly split down the middle. But it's an important topic, and it's something that we can't just sort of agree to disagree on. It's that important. Anyway, continuing. This essay attempts to bring together some theoretical, definitional, and logical considerations, and also to cite some of the extensive empirical evidence which is now available, which demonstrates that China has indeed definitely become a capitalist imperialist country. We thus approach the question from a number of different angles. Introduction. To friends and comrades, and all who hate imperialism and want revolution, and who believe that Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism must and can become a much more capable and effective force. It has long been known and understood that the entire world has been under the control of capitalist imperialism. For a time, a section of this world broke from it, beginning with the victory of socialism in Russia and continuing through the Chinese Revolution, constituting a socialist world, comment, or socialist camp. If you go back to Stalin's Two Camps from 1919, this was the time when there was actually a strong socialist camp, continuing. Yet in time, the socialist countries, through internal class struggles in politics and economics, were seized by capitalist conciliators and advocates, and then by capitalists themselves, who were largely within the ruling communist parties themselves. First in Russia, later in China, when these counter-revolutions and coups took place, there ensued a period of entry and integration into the world imperialist system. The Soviet Union, at first under the existing signboard of socialism, continued much of its established national and economic power relations into a new social imperialist bloc, socialist in name, imperialist in reality. The Russian capitalist imperialist attempt to maintain this bloc, or important sections of what had been part of this bloc and its historic allies, has continued in the years since the socialist signboard was discarded. In China, the defeat of the proletariat and the capitalist capture of state power after the death of the great revolutionary Mao Zedong have also led to a period of integration into the world imperialist system. China still operates under a socialist signboard, but has conducted itself unambiguously as a capitalist power. Before the last decade, especially since the demise of the socialist bloc, the U.S. was commonly seen as the sole superpower to which all other powers had to defer. The system which the U.S. had designed, the end of World War II, was global in scope, and to some, it was more, quote, democratic in appearance than the old colonial empires. 
but it was built around the elitist privilege of power and authority, meaning the U.S. as superpower, was at the centerpiece of the controls. But in the last decade, the imperialist world system is not what it used to be. Throughout the world, corrupt and comprador regimes have faced significant and often unprecedented mass popular opposition movements, which have revealed the deep instability of the old neocolonial arrangements. Even in the EU, the product of imperialist designs to supplant the historic and Ternicene battles, there has emerged ever-deepening crisis and conflicts, and movements to assert nationalist interests against one another, which can only lead to opposing the EU arrangements overall. Against the, quote, threat of Islamic fundamentalism, again the fake war on terror, the imperialist system, as directed by the U.S., has launched wars, such as in Iraq and Afghanistan, at huge cost, trillions of dollars, and immeasurable losses in political credibility and imperialist authority, as neither war has won any of the U.S.'s objectives. These clear failures at the hand of the largest and most powerful military force in the world do not bode well for maintaining the U.S.'s hegemonic domination of the world's imperialist system. And the economic and financial crisis of the last half-decade or more, talking about 2008, has stirred not only deep discontent, resentment, and popular political opposition within the ranks of the U.S.'s, quote, reliable allies, but it has brought to the fore the imperialist anti-U.S. challenges from other major powers, China and Russia. Forces worldwide are studying these changes and considering how they change the set of options at hand. The all-too-prevalent view that U.S. imperialism is so powerful, so dominant, and so capable of manipulating all manner of forces and bending them to its will has been, and continues to be, a dangerous twisting reality. The sole superpower in this view has been attributed with omnipotent features that defy effective challenge, that reflect a supposedly skillful control of contradictions and crises that afflicted earlier empires, and that has a boundless ability to disguise its malevolent work. If it were true, it would be a remarkable development in human history. Indeed, it would be, as once touted in the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union and its associated bloc by Francis Fukuyama, the end of history, i.e. the end of historical conflict and systemic challenges. It would be an expression of the boastful and fanciful capitalist's post-Mao motto, Tina, there is no alternative to capitalism. Comment here, you find a lot of this in the sort of alt-right and libertarian conspiracy movement. You know, Alex Jones, people like that who are less mainstream than Alex Jones, basically pushing the idea that the capitalist class, although they don't exactly analyze it that way, have perfected the scientific permanent dictatorship and that basically this will just endure for millennia and it's going to be this horrible police state, etc., because they don't actually understand historical materialism and class struggle. But you find that concept all throughout supporters of capitalism at all levels. Libertarians tend to be more petty bourgeois and they consider the big capitalists to be, quote, communists. No, advanced monopoly capitalism is not communism. And unlearning that incorrect idea, deeply incorrect idea about historical development and class struggle might go a long way towards correcting some of these people's other views. Anyway, continuing. There are others who assert that the U.S. is not so omnipotent and that it's in decline and may be failing, but that the U.S. and its close allies constitute the only imperialism that matters and that if all its detractors, victims, opponents, and its imperialist rivals band together, quote, liberation will truly be achieved with the demise of U.S. imperialism. This view also holds that whenever big powers like China or Russia 
rise in opposition to the U.S. They deserve the support and applause from progressive and revolutionary forces. Comment, for example, Danny Haifang, big supporter of China, calling Putin a progressive force. Perfect example. The multipolarity people. Holding this view is a variety of forces who cling to the notion that the Cold War division of the world is still extant and that popular protests in recent years from Libya to Syria, Ukraine and Venezuela, as well as Brazil and Turkey, Iran, even inside Western China in Urumqi, are all examples of U.S. meddling and desperate interference. Color Revolution This view holds that without such U.S. manipulation and interference and disruption, the people would, by and large, be happy or passive. Comment, this is, again, basically the right-wing conspiratorial view of history, just through a different lens. This is by any measure an amazing claim, denying the existence of class contradictions and struggles within each of these countries, and making it appear that the conspiratorial powers of the U.S. to manipulate events are unparalleled in reach and effectiveness. In practical political terms, this view distorts the basic reality that many regimes, bourgeois states that usually evoke one ethnic or religious or nationalist section of the people over others, aim to repress the sharpening class struggle and broad discontent and rebellion. And a key aspect of that repression is to depict that popular struggle in diplomacy, media, culture, and in state-to-state -state relations as something else, a defense of national sovereignty against external interference and intervention. Comment, we say this a lot about fascism, how it tries to turn class struggle into racial struggle or national struggle, etc. It's a sign of capitalism in crisis trying to spin the conflict away from itself. If such a claim were valid, there would be evidentiary smoking guns producing linking imperial manipulators and local instruments on the one hand, and at the same time showing that the issues or grievances being protested are false or fabricated, invented, with the foreign hand active in their creation or distribution. To simply say that foreign forces have tried to influence events is always and obviously true, but that they try does not prove that they are effective and actually succeed at controlling events. The U.S.'s superpowers of domination and control are already fading, and the entire world imperialist system is driven to deeper crises and unsolvable contradictions. That capitalism and imperialism are so full of contradiction should not confound proletarian revolutionaries and Marxist-Leninist Maoists. But many have lagged behind on this understanding in the current world. For some, this is because of the lingering influence and assumptions of past periods which brought forward the Cold War paradigm and the Third World paradigm and the U.S. sole superpower paradigm. These have continued and have become more deeply embedded in progressive and anti-imperialist political culture through the influence of revisionism, of social democracy, of reformism, of nationalism, of imperialist promotion of pacifism and pragmatism amid a broad climate of despair. Comment, very well said. And I just want to add, when they talk about the third world paradigm, Briefly, we talk about this in the live stream sometimes. Deng Xiaoping was the leader of China after Mao who oversaw this return to capitalism, quote, market reforms and opening up, and promoted the three worlds theory, which basically held that the U.S. and the USSR were the first world, that all of the sort of medium tier countries, France, UK, Canada, etc., were the second world, and that the rest of the world was the third or developing world, and that basically all of the forces of the third world needed to unite, effectively kind of erasing class struggle within the developing world. 
That's a broad topic that we're going to be covering in future live streams and future audiobooks, etc. But I just wanted to highlight that when we talk about campism today. Again, that lingering idea from back when there was a socialist camp that you can still sort of do this lazy shorthand of national struggle as class struggle. Well, that may have worked back in 1919 when Stalin was writing two camps and, you know, for some time after that. But given what has already been discussed in this text, that is a lingering, now obsolete paradigm from a bygone era, and we need to adjust our models accordingly. It's not appropriate anymore. It doesn't describe the world anymore. But anyway, when people talk about campism, a lot of times it's more accurate to refer to Dungus Three Worlds Theory. Anyway, continuing. The growing conflicts and disputes among imperialist powers, old and new, are but the inevitable seeds of conflict between exploitative and oppressive powers, which must expand at each other's expense. All the imperialist powers wish for greater control of the entire world system, but each works with as much as they are able to actually seize. Among revolutionaries, and even among Marxist-Leninist-Maoist revolutionaries, a common illusion continues to be that the U.S. is the sole enemy the only superpower, which possesses such superpowers that only by uniting the people with all who oppose U.S. domination can the empire be brought down. This has led to political lines which cast class struggles and popular mass rebellions as actually an endless series of conflicts between those who assert national sovereignty and national independence against the interference and intervention of external forces commanded, that is to say, organized, financed, supplied, directed, and influenced by the U.S. This denial of the class struggle has led to an embrace of local reactionaries, an embrace of the local reactionaries claimed or real powerful backers. It has often led to a one-sided opposition to the U.S. and denial that contending imperialist powers are squaring off in a series of proxy wars between contending imperialists. And such denials have been made even by those claiming to be, quote, anti-imperialists. This line can only develop as a new version of the historically discredited line of defense of the fatherland, which German socialists, including Kautsky, adopted before World War I, and which was a large reason for the collapse of the Second Socialist International. But in this period, this line takes the form of defending any power that's on the outs or opposed to U.S. imperialism. The historic rejection of this line, defense of the fatherland, was sharply and famously undertaken by Lenin and the Bolshevik party, which argued instead for revolutionary defeatism toward all imperialist and reactionary powers as the only stance for revolutionaries. They opposed collaborationist nationalism with revolutionary internationalism. And with this line, the October Revolution was won. In the world today, oftentimes the critics of embattled, oppressive local reactionaries are criticized by anti-imperialists, quote-unquote, or leftists, quote-unquote, who say that such criticism gives aid and support to U.S. imperialists. The crisis of the imperialist system is objectively good cause for the advance of revolutionary forces, but the subjective understanding, the ideological and political, has not kept pace with the developments in the world, and this can only lead to the irrelevance of internationalist revolutionary proletarian forces, and even prevent their re-emergence as the dynamic force which can lead the process of current widespread rebellion forward to socialist proletarian revolution throughout the world, and onward to a new future for humanity without national, religious, ethnic, gender, and class divisions, the prospect of communism. So, clarifying the nature of the world imperialist system, its contradictions and cracks, 
and developing contending and opposing powers is essential for revolutionaries to move forward and lead the organization and ability of genuine revolutionary political forces to seize historic opportunities in the period ahead. There have been many steps forward in the development of Marxism-Leninism-Maoism as a worldview, an analysis, and methodology. But the development at each turn has depended upon the battle against revisionist distortions and abandonment of basic and time-tested principles and methods. Lenin worked to rescue Marx from the revisionist distortions of Bernstein and Kautsky on the nature of state power, especially the need for the revolutionary overthrow of the capitalist state in opposition to the line of reformist unity with progressive nationalist unity with the bourgeoisie. Similarly, Mao worked diligently to rescue Lenin from the revisionist distortions of Tito and Khrushchev and Liu Shaoqi regarding the need to understand and oppose imperialism, uphold proletarian revolution and socialist transformation, and insisting on the independence and keeping initiative in the hands of revolutionary proletarian forces. The distortions of this period have unique characteristics, but they also repeat many of the historic distortions of Karl Kautsky. There is a neo-Kautskyist view of ultra-imperialism, one of Kautsky's main theories, and by the way, we have an audiobook of Kautsky talking about ultra-imperialism on the channel, which is then followed by a repudiation by Lenin, that many apply to the power of U.S. imperialism since World War II to the present. The argument is made that, one, the allies of the U.S. are firm, unshakable, and presumably permanent, as far as the eye can see. Two, the size and capacity of the U.S. military is, for any would-be challenger, unbreachably overwhelming. Three, that China is far too much of a Johnny-come-lately to be taken seriously as an imperialist challenger to the U.S. Four, that China has gone from being a comprador and cheap labor resource for the U.S. to a power deeply and critically impaired by being locked into the U.S. financial system, unable to break out. Five, that there are no potential allies of China, beyond Russia, which could seriously pose the threat of an opposing bloc to the U.S.-led bloc, now or in the future. Six, that China's military is incapable of posing a military challenge to the U.S., now or in the future. Seven, and even some argue that there has been a kind of historical maturation to U.S. imperialism, which was previously subject to the laws of overproduction of capital, leading to World War I and World War II, which, since World War II, had sufficient dominance by the U.S. and presumably sufficient imperialist international architecture to prevent devastating overproduction crises and will be able to resolve or control less than devastating crises. 8. And some argue that deep crisis will never lead to inter-imperialist warfare, possibly including nuclear weapons, ever again. 9. And that such powers and controls by U.S. imperialism and its allies means that any and all talk of revolution, much less of armed mass revolution, is a fantasy only held by, quote, ultra-leftist, i.e. not genuine or serious, revolutionaries. And 10. A variation of this argument holds that pacifist reformism is the only method of genuine change within the imperialist countries. So, as present-day Neo-Kautskyites throw out Lenin and adopt Kautsky, they discard the basics of dialectical materialism and of internationalism and revolution, all in the name of, quote, anti-U.S. imperialism. Comment, we also call this, as Enver Hoxha did, pseudo-anti-imperialism. It is the responsibility of all revolutionaries to defeat such revisionism and to clarify the nature of imperialism today and why revolutionary internationalism must take aim at and organize forces with clear understanding that revolution requires opposition to the entire capitalist imperialist system. 
It is with this responsibility in mind that we offer the following essay on the growth and development of China as a major contending imperialist power in this period. We welcome your comments, criticisms, and suggestions, and we especially encourage further work on this issue. All revolutionary advance in the period ahead requires combating the blinding curse of revisionism. As Mao said, cast away illusions, prepare for struggle. Section 1. What does it mean today to say that a country is an imperialist one? We Marxist-Leninist Maoists follow Lenin in our conception of what imperialism is in the modern capitalist era. That is to say, we use the term imperialism, or what we often also refer to as capitalist imperialism to be clearer, in a sense somewhat different than the traditional sense of imperialism in the ancient world, or even in the earlier capitalist period. Imperialism, in this Leninist sense, is the modern stage of capitalism. Quoting Lenin, Imperialism is capitalism in that stage of development, in which the dominance of monopolies and finance capital, what's finance capital? Basically the merging of financial and industrial capital, as the financial capital becomes so intertwined with the industrial capital, that it becomes this new force, finance capital, has established itself, in which the export of capital has acquired pronounced importance, in which the division of the world among the international trusts or very large companies has begun, in which the division of all territories of the globe among the biggest capitalist powers has been completed." Unquote. It's quoting from Lenin's Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Note that there have been some secondary changes in the situation since Lenin's time. For example, international trusts now generally take the form of multinational or transnational corporations, MNCs or TNCs. Similarly, the former direct colonies, owned as exclusive preserves by individual capitalist powers, are now most often nominally independent neo-colonies, open to more general predation by all the capitalist power centers. But in its essence, Lenin's definition of capitalist imperialism is still completely valid, and it's the one we still adhere to. Lenin also stated that, quote, if it were necessary to give the briefest possible definition of imperialism, we should have to say that imperialism is the monopoly stage of capitalism, unquote. So again, that's super important. In Marxism-Leninism, there is a very specific definition of imperialism. In a nutshell, Lenin said, what is imperialism in the current era? It's the monopoly stage of capitalism. That is imperialism. It's distinct from the early ascendant phase of capitalism, where the nation state and the national market isn't yet constructed and then saturated isn't yet overflowing those recently constructed national borders and seeking other countries to exploit. No, it is the later stage, more advanced monopoly stage of capitalism, which has a number of particular characteristics which were discussed above. Continuing, imperialism in the ancient or traditional sense of being simply the domination and economic exploitation of one country by another is still an essential aspect of imperialism in the Leninist sense. Imperialism, in the narrow sense of a country being dominated and exploited by one or more other countries, in fact characterizes modern capitalism as much as monopoly does, and is essential to it. But now there's a lot more to what we mean by imperialism. As explained by one writer, quote, We Marxist-Leninists seek not merely to describe the political surface of society, but to probe the material underpinnings and to bring to light the economic factors and relationships which lead to those political circumstances. Lenin made the choice to use the term imperialism not just to refer to certain policies of aggression, conquest, and foreign control, but more importantly, to refer to an economic system 
that depends upon such policies for its very existence. This is a profound new meaning for the term imperialism. That's quoting from Scott H. Lenin on imperialism from 2007, online at massline.org. Section 2. Many Marxists don't fully share Lenin's new conception of imperialism. But many people, including many who are influenced by Marxism-Leninism, and who may even view themselves as Marxist-Leninists or Maoists, don't really use the term imperialism in the way that Lenin did. That's a major no-no, and it leads to a lot of confusion across the board. Confusion that mainly benefits the imperialists. Continuing, they haven't really grasped Lenin's conception. They still tend to use the term more in the traditional way, as a reference only to direct military conquest and control, rather than to a new stage of capitalism. Some vaguely Marxist-influenced individuals are quite open about this, such as the, quote, third world theorist Samir Amin. Quote, imperialism is not a stage, according to Amin, not even the highest stage of capitalism. From the beginning, it's inherent in capitalism's expansion. The imperialist conquest of the planet by the Europeans and their North American children was carried out in two phases and is perhaps entering a third, unquote. This is a complete rejection of Lenin's conception and an insistence on using the word imperialism in its old, one could almost say anti-Marxist-Leninist sense. And in keeping with this, Amin sees only three imperialist centers in the world, the so-called triad, the U.S., Europe and Japan, and refuses to accept that China could possibly be a new imperialist power. For him, China has long been part of the, quote, third world, or the, quote, periphery, or the, quote, south, and could never change into anything else. Moreover, views such as those of Amin seem to have had a considerable influence on many others, and are promoted by influential forces on the, quote, left, such as Monthly Review magazine. However, a more common sort of view within Marxist-Leninist-Maoist circles is to accept Lenin's definition of imperialism in words, but to nevertheless still somehow feel that no country can actually be an imperialist one unless it is at or near the top of the heap in terms of military power and frequent engagement in wars of aggression against other countries. That is to say, despite their verbal agreement that imperialism is a stage of capitalism, they still somehow feel that it has more to do with direct and immediate military aggression. When it's pointed out that there are other countries, such as Japan, Italy, and Russia, which are certainly imperialist countries, but which are not at present much engaged in military aggression, they have no good response. Of course, this is taking on new dimensions with Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, but there's a footnote here. Of course, even imperialist countries, such as Japan, Italy, and Russia, and China, as we'll discuss later, have participated in imperialist wars and adventures to some limited degree. Post-USSR Russia, for example, has used military force against its southern neighbor Georgia, as well as against internal colonies such as Chechnya and Dagestan. And as we complete this essay, this was 2014, Russia appears to be using its military force to dismember Ukraine. Remember that 2014 was the year that the current crisis was really first beginning to escalate in its present form. Back to the text. But they still feel in their bones that a country can't really be an imperialist one unless it's like the U.S., and at open war with much of the world. Their central conception of what it means to be imperialist is still the traditional military concept, not the Marxist-Leninist socio-economic concept of a new stage of capitalism. Section 3. Is the U.S. the only imperialist country, or is there an imperialist system? It's discomforting for some people to think even of countries like Britain, Germany, and France as imperialist countries, because really, when they think of imperialism, they're actually only thinking of the United States. The United States is 
imperialism for some people. They view this as an identity. To oppose imperialism is to oppose the United States. To build a united front against imperialism is to build the unity of virtually all the countries of the world against the United States. Or, if they admit that Britain, Germany, and France might be junior partners of the U.S. in its imperial wars, then they still see countries like Russia and China as potential allies, quote, against imperialism. And similarly, for murderous local dictators in individual economically underdeveloped or third world countries, such as Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, or the Islamic theocratic regime in Iran, who these people are always trying to find excuses for or to support outright in the name of, quote, opposing imperialism. Footnote here, the International League of People's Struggle, ILPS, under Jose Maria Sison's leadership, and one of the Trotskyist parties in the U.S., the Workers' World Party, or crypto-Trotskyist, are two of the organizations that frequently support such reactionary leaders and their vicious regimes. We must oppose U.S. or other foreign imperialist intervention in these countries, but that certainly does not mean that we should, in any way, support these murderous regimes themselves or refrain from strongly condemning them. It's important to understand this distinction, which a lot of people really have trouble with. They go into a binary thing where, if not this, then that. Okay, or how about class struggle? Back to the text. And some people who, even in the face of ever-mounting and by now conclusive evidence, finally grudgingly admit that China is an imperialist country, at least according to Lenin's definition, nevertheless still think of China, and often also Russia, as being important forces to ally with. Consider, for example, Jose Maria Sison, the chairperson of the International League for People's Struggle. In 2012, Sison denounced the, quote, false claim that China, quote, is rising as an imperialist rival of the United States. However, more recently still, he modified his stance and stated in an interview, quote, Indeed, the Dungus counter-revolution resulted in the restoration of capitalism in China and its integration into the world capitalist system. By Lenin's economic definition of modern imperialism, China may qualify as imperialist. Bureaucrat and private monopoly capital has become dominant in Chinese society. Bank capital and industrial capital are merged. Comment, that's finance capital we were talking about before. China is exporting surplus capital to other countries. Its capitalist enterprises combine with other foreign capitalist enterprises to exploit Chinese labor, third world countries, and the global market. China colludes and competes with other imperialist countries in expanding economic territory, such as sources of cheap labor and raw materials, fields of investments, markets, strategic vantage points, and spheres of influence. However, China has not yet engaged in a war of aggression to acquire a colony, semi-colony, protectorate, or dependent country. It is not yet very violent in the struggle for a redivision of the world among the big capitalist powers. It is with respect to China's contention with more aggressive and plunderous imperialist powers that may somehow be helpful to revolutionary movements in an objective and indirect way. China is playing an outstanding role in the economic bloc BRICS and in the security organization, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, beyond U.S. control, unquote. China only, quote, may qualify as an imperialist country. Note also in the second paragraph above how Sison seems to still view the acquisition of colonies or semi-colonies, protectorates, etc. as being essential to imperialism, the way it was before World War II. There's something quite outdated in his conception. And note especially how Sison portrays China as a more palatable or acceptable form of imperialism, if it's to be called that at all, which still seems to him to be able to play a positive role in the world. This is tending dangerously close, 
may have even crossed the line to proclaiming our imperialism versus, quote, theirs. However, it's not just the U.S. imperialists who are the enemy of the people of the world, even if they are at present the strongest and most vicious enemy, or as I like to say, the military arm of the imperialist system. All imperialist countries are the enemy of the people, and all of them must be opposed. The entire imperialist system must be opposed and overthrown. And opposing imperialism should never come to mean supporting local tyrants, local enemies of the people, who after all, were usually set up as imperialist lackeys and agents in the first place. The key point that those who hold such views do not understand is that there is an imperialist system. The world imperialist system, as it presently exists, is in fact dominated by the U.S., especially militarily. But all the other imperialist countries, including not only Britain, Germany, France, Italy, and Japan, but also Russia and China, are now part of and participants in this imperialist system. All these countries, and even some others, including Holland, Belgium, Canada, Australia, and South Korea, benefit from this imperialist system and share in the plunder of the less economically developed countries and in the joint exploitation of the working people of the whole world that the system makes possible. Everything has a history, and the world imperialist system also has a history. It developed out of the old system of quite separate empires consisting of colonies which were the exclusive preserve of one or another capitalist imperialist country. This system proved to be unstable. The colonies kept rebelling and demanding freedom, and new imperialist powers arose, such as the US, Germany, and Japan, which did not have many colonies, and were thus compelled to try to take some away from the existing empires. This led not only to fairly small wars, such as the Spanish-American War, in which the US stole some of Spain's colonies, but then to two horribly destructive world wars, and even to mass genocide by the Germans in Europe, the Japanese in China, Britain and India through famine, and the U.S. via atom bombs in Japan. Even from the point of view of the imperialist powers with a lot of colonies, there were some serious economic limitations due to the colonial system. While they could keep out other powers from their own colonies, they were in turn kept out of the colonies owned by those other powers. This meant that there was an inherent inflexibility in options for the export of capital in the colonial imperialist era, even for the strongest imperialist countries. So objectively, capitalist imperialism needed to change in a way that would allow a free scope for the worldwide predations by all the imperialist powers, operating under agreed-upon rules of, quote, fair play, including for new imperialist powers if they arose, and at the same time, to grant nominal, quote, freedom to the colonies. These are the basic reasons why the older-style capitalist imperialism that was based on exclusive colonies, which existed before World War II, was soon transformed into the new world imperialist system based on neocolonialism after that war. There's a footnote here. We're using the term neocolonialism in a broad sense, which typically means that the country in question is, in effect, the collective property of all the capitalist imperialist powers. Sometimes this is also called post-colonialism. We're not using the term neocolonialism in the sense it's occasionally used by some to mean a country that is a hidden colony of a single capitalist imperialist power, such as perhaps the same power which formerly controlled it as an open colony. So commenting, I mentioned this in the live stream as well, that latter form is the meaning of neocolonialism that I knew. So what they're calling neocolonialism is what I would probably call post-colonialism. But anyway, you have colonialism, where you have a country of people who are very clearly ruled by people from some other country who are exploiting that country. Then you have neocolonialism. When that system didn't work anymore, 
it became hidden colonies. So basically then the government and the power structure appeared to be people from the local population, but in fact, they were still working for that predation by some other country. Then you get into this system of sort of shared control, shared exploitation, where an exploited country is not just exploited by one particular country, which sort of claims it as its property, but is put into the system where it is preyed upon by all of the different countries who sort of share it. Continuing, the structure of this current world imperialist system had its origins in the allied bloc of imperialists during World War II. It was not only a military alliance during the war, but also set up international economic agencies like the IMF and World Bank to manage its sphere of control after the war. Once the Axis bloc of Germany, Italy, and Japan was defeated, it was absorbed into this allied bloc, which was then usually referred to as the Western bloc, despite the inclusion of Japan. During the state capitalist period of the USSR and the remainder of the Cold War, there were two essentially independent imperialist systems, the US-led Western bloc and the Soviet social imperialist-led so-called socialist bloc. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union and its satellites, they too were absorbed into the remaining bloc. However, having now triumphed over almost the entire world and defeated all its competitors, this was no longer just an imperialist bloc, it was now the world imperialist system. China, during the Maoist era, was outside both of the two competing imperialist systems then existing from the late 1950s on. But after Mao's death, the capitalist rotors, led by Deng Xiaoping, transformed China back into a capitalist country, whose ruling national bourgeoisie, based in the Communist Party of China, was then faced with the choice to try to develop China separately from the rest of the capitalist world, or to join up and become part of the existing world capitalist imperialist system. They were compelled to choose the latter course, the only option with any real possibility of success. They, quote, reformed their own originally state capitalist economy to a considerable degree along private monopoly capitalist lines, quote, opened up to foreign capitalist investment and joined the IMF in 1980, the World Bank in 1980, and the World Trade Organization in 2001. They did this with eyes wide open, feeling that they could beat the U.S. and other major powers at their own game because of China's much greater exploitation of its own vast ocean of very low-paid workers. And so far, their gamble has proven to be a great success, as measured by capitalist imperialist standards like GDP growth rates, trade surpluses, the generation of great wealth for the Chinese bourgeoisie, and so on. There's a footnote here. In a later section, we will discuss the organization of Chinese capitalism today in a bit more detail. But while it is true that there are still many very important state-owned enterprises, or SOEs, it's also become true that these corporations, which are officially owned by the state, now actually function pretty much the same way as the, quote, private Chinese corporations do in the national and international market, i.e., as if they were ordinary multinational corporations. And while Chinese capitalism today still has a stronger state participation in its entire economy, including the private sector, than do most other countries, nevertheless, positively all capitalist imperialist countries today can be viewed as a partial merger of the state with the capitalist economy. Moreover, that state intervention and direction is qualitatively expanding everywhere as the world economic crisis, started in 2008, continues to develop. While the U.S. definitely dominated the Western imperialist bloc and has dominated the world imperialist system, its degree of domination has been slipping very noticeably over the decades. As we will discuss below, the economic strength of the U.S. as compared to the rest of the world 
has declined tremendously since World War II. Europe's economy is now bigger than the U.S., and now, with the rapid economic rise of China over the past few decades, the U.S. economic domination of the world has nearly ended. Politically and militarily, too, the U.S. domination of the world imperialist system is weakening, though more slowly. Sometimes this is expressed by saying that the once unipolar world, dominated by a single superpower, has become a multipolar world. We will discuss this from another perspective later. The decline of the United States and the considerable rise of other imperialist powers since World War II serves to further emphasize the importance of viewing contemporary imperialism as a world system, and by no means as the same thing as just U.S. imperialism alone. It is quite true that the U.S. has been the world's top policeman for the Western imperialist bloc, like I said, the military arm of it, since the end of World War II, and for the entire world imperialist system since the collapse of Soviet social imperialism and its competing bloc in the 1989-91 to timeframe. But the U.S. demands that its junior partners also participate in its imperialist wars, such as in Iraq and Afghanistan, and this need is further intensified because the economic weakening of the U.S. is making it ever more difficult for the U.S. to hold this world imperialist system together through its individual military might. And countries such as France and Britain often, and increasingly, take the lead in, quote, maintaining order, in a way that benefits all the major capitalist countries as well as themselves, in their smaller former colonies in Africa and elsewhere. However, all the major capitalist countries greatly benefit from the military policing still carried out or directed mostly by the U.S. This policing is not just for the U.S. alone, but also on behalf of the entire imperialist world system. All these major capitalist countries, now including Russia and China, also participate in the economic penetration and exploitation of not only the less developed countries, but are also allowed to invest in and operate exploitative corporations within each other's borders. China's current huge push into Africa, for example, is enabled because the U.S., with the aid of Britain, France, and others, is keeping the continent open and available for economic penetration and exploitation by all the capitalist powers. Footnote here, we could also mention in this connection the U.S. military's AFRICOM command, which has placed military advisors in many African countries. The significant role played by the French imperialists in, quote, stabilizing the Ivory Coast, Mali, and other countries, and in bringing down the Gaddafi regime in Libya and the development of a few countries such as Nigeria as regional cops, sometimes working in the service of the world imperialist system. Back to the text. But you might ask, if the U.S. is doing most of the military fighting, or at least directing or controlling it, to maintain the world imperialist system, then why does it allow all these other major capitalist countries to share in the plunder? There are two main answers to this. One, the U.S. recognized long ago that despite its great military power, it could not hold the world imperialist system together all by itself. Unless other principal capitalist powers were allowed to benefit from the system, they would oppose it, undermine it, and seek to build competing imperialist blocks and spheres of control, which might even lead to additional world wars. And in order for the U.S. to secure the right to sell to and invest in other leading capitalist countries, it has had to create international rules which allow those countries to also sell to and invest in the United States. Furthermore, its bourgeois economic ideology erroneously maintains that every country will benefit, more or less proportionally, from such a system. And since it was the biggest, it thought it would always benefit the most. And its political ideology favored the neo-colonial method of world exploitation because it didn't have many of its own colonies. 
too. The US, in leading and setting up this world imperialist system, arranged for some very special benefits for itself that the other countries do not share. For example, it has a grossly disproportionate share in the control of the international institutions that were set up, particularly the IMF and the World Bank. Even more importantly, the US dollar was granted a special status in this world imperialist system. Initially, this was because the US owned most of the gold bullion in the world at the end of World War II, and the dollar was made convertible into gold. But even after President Richard Nixon ended this, because the US was rapidly being depleted of gold, the dollar still had a special status as the primary international reserve currency. Basically, the US has had the right, since the end of World War II, to just print dollars and buy the products of the world with them. However, in recent decades, more and more constraints have developed on this ever more reluctant munificence of the rest of the world toward the US. Moreover, the euro has now become one alternate reserve currency, and there are predictions that the Chinese renminbi, or yuan, might someday soon also become an international reserve currency. A couple of footnotes here. First, on the US just printing money that it can use to buy the products of the world, this remains a major irritation to other imperialist countries. For example, in a recent editorial, The Economist, a leading publication of the British ruling class, noted that, quote, America enjoys the exorbitant privilege of printing the world's reserve currency, unquote. The other note is about alternative reserve currencies as well. In 2011, Arvind Subramanian of the Peterson Institute for International Economics even predicted that, quote, the renminbi could replace the dollar as the world's largest reserve currency within 10 years. Now, that was from a Bloomberg article in 2011. We were just discussing this 12 years later. It has not happened yet. We were just discussing this in a live stream about BRICS. They just had their summit recently, and there is not widespread agreement among the BRICS group about what would be the next reserve currency or if they would form a new currency. China wants it to be their money. India wants it to be their money. Different countries want different things. Back to the text. So, yes, the U.S. has provided the primary military force to maintain this world imperialist system, but it was not just out of the goodness of its heart. It has gotten paid for doing this and paid handsomely. Think of it this way. There's been a division of labor among a group of international gangsters. The chief enforcer has been the U.S., but the other gangsters have mostly been willing to have it this way since they have also benefited tremendously from the arrangement. And the U.S. has been willing to share in the plunder, both because it had to, and because it got a much bigger and more stable share of the loot by doing it this way. Section 4. China as an Integral Part of the World Capitalist Imperialist System The deal to bring China into this international capitalist imperialist system required China 1. To continue its already existing economic transformation back to capitalism at home and to make a commitment to mostly do this along Western monopoly capitalist lines. State monopoly capitalism was to be more and more cut back, or made nominal, which China was already doing anyway. 2. To more or less fully open up its economy to foreign investment by multinational corporations based in other countries, and allow them to also exploit local low-paid Chinese labor, both for the Chinese market and for export. 3. To more or less play by the international rules of this world imperialist system, including the rules promulgated by the IMF and WTO. In exchange, China was 1. Granted membership in the WTO and access on nearly equal terms to the international markets for its goods. Unequal tariff barriers and such were qualitatively lowered. 2. In a much better position to acquire foreign technology, not only in foreign factories operating in China, but also in locally owned Chinese factories. 
3. Allowed to export capital to other countries in the world imperialist system, to buy up foreign mines and other companies which are a major source of raw materials needed by the Chinese economy, and to set up subsidiaries of its own corporations, either state-owned or private, in foreign countries, and to buy up assets all around the world. As this arrangement developed, and China became ever more important in the world economy, there was a tacit financial agreement tacked on top of this. China would be allowed to run a huge trade surplus, provided that it used a large part of this surplus to buy up a great part of the ever-growing government debt that the U.S. and other countries were incurring. The present world economic system could not continue functioning if this was not happening. And it is highly unstable, even as it is. So, not only is China an integral part of the world capitalist imperialist system, with its ruling class benefiting tremendously from its participation in the system, this world system has in turn become overwhelmingly dependent on China for its crucial role within it. Both its huge role as a manufacturer of low-cost goods and its critical role as a lender to the U.S. and other countries to prop up the whole international financial system. China is now not only part of the world imperialist system, its economic and financial role within that system has become as essential as America's military role. China's economy is now not only certainly a capitalist economy, but a monopoly capitalist economy. And because its state-owned enterprises, or SOEs, now operate much as if they were private multinational corporations, it is, from a Leninist standpoint, unambiguously also an imperialist country. Remember, capitalist imperialism in the modern era is the same thing as monopoly capitalism, according to Lenin. Section 5. Foreign investment in China does not preclude its being an imperialist country. It's often argued that China can't possibly be an imperialist country because foreign imperialist countries, such as the United States, have investments in China and are exploiting it. The idea seems to be that you either must be the victim of imperialism or the country doing the victimizing, but you can't be both. Since the beginning of modern capitalist imperialism well over a century ago, the imperialist powers have always exported goods to each other's countries have always purchased or set up factories in each other's countries, and have always exported capital to each other's countries, and thus have always exploited each other's working class. In fact, the largest part of their export of capital is actually to other imperialist countries, even if this is not usually the most profitable part. And this has especially been true for those countries which did not have a lot of colonies themselves. Moreover, the percentage of what is known as cross-investment in each other's economies has generally increased over time. In talking about the export of capital, in 1916, Lenin said, quote, How is this capital invested abroad, distributed among the various countries? Where is it invested? Only an approximate answer can be given to this question, but one sufficient to throw light on certain general relations and connections of modern imperialism. The principal spheres of investment of British capital are the British colonies, which are very large also in America, for example, Canada, not to mention Asia, etc., in this case, enormous exports of capital are bound up most closely with vast colonies, the importance of which for imperialism we shall speak later. In the case of France, the situation is different. French capital exports are invested mainly in Europe, primarily in Russia, at least 10 billion francs. This is mainly loan capital, government loans, and not investments in industrial undertakings. Unlike British colonial imperialism, French imperialism might be termed usury imperialism. In the case of Germany, we have a third type. Colonies are inconsiderable, and German capital invested abroad is divided almost evenly between Europe and America." Unquote. Thus, even in the period before World War I, 
a considerable part of the export of capital from imperialist countries was to other advanced capitalist and imperialist countries. Footnote here, in another place Lenin notes, in criticizing Sokolnikov for his view that the export of capital always results in super profits, quote, it is difficult to accept as correct the statement on super profits and new countries, since capital has also been exported from Germany to Italy, from France to Switzerland, etc. Under imperialism, capital has begun to be exported to the old countries as well, and not for super profits alone. Back to the text. After World War I, this trend intensified. Footnote here again. In the volume, New Data for V.I. Lenin's Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, published by international publishers in the late 1930s, we find, quote, important changes in the direction of capital exports. First of all, Russia has dropped out as a sphere of investment and as a source of super profit. Secondly, Germany has now entered the list of countries which import capital. The technically and economically most advanced country in Europe has now become a source of super profit obtained from capital exports, unquote. Back to the text. And after World War II, this trend intensified vastly more. World War II destroyed a tremendous amount of productive capital in Europe and Asia, and this opened up the possibility for the export of capital to those countries on a much greater scale. By far the largest target for the export of U.S. capital after that war was none other than the major imperialist countries of Europe, Germany, Britain, France, and Italy. And has the fact that the U.S. and other countries have exported huge amounts of capital to those countries in any way prevented them from being imperialist countries themselves? Certainly not. In the very same way, the fact that the U.S. and other imperialist countries now export capital to China and set up factories there in no way shows that China is not also now a major capitalist imperialist country. What single country has been the greatest destination for the export of capital? In recent decades, up through 2011, it was none other than the United States itself. We take it for granted that no one would use this fact to conclude that the U.S. is not an imperialist country. Footnote there, in 2012 for the first time, and mostly because of a big drop in foreign direct investment going into the U.S. that year, China surpassed the U.S. as the favorite target for foreign direct investment. Data sources provided in a footnote later. Back to the text. Moreover, while other imperialist countries export capital to China and to each other, China in turn also exports capital to those countries, and substantial amounts of it too. In fact, in 2012, about one-third of China's foreign investment was to the advanced capitalist countries of Europe. China's investment in Europe has hugely increased, in part because of the continuing economic crisis there, which opens up opportunities for China and necessities for financially strapped European companies and countries. Footnote there, Europe is coming to depend more and more on China to help bail it out of its crisis, not only in severely depressed countries like Greece and Spain, but even elsewhere. For example, the Chinese auto giant Dongfeng has just agreed to purchase part of the ailing French automaker PSA Peugeot Citroën for $1.1 billion. Back to the text. In addition, China exports a great deal of capital to the U.S., Canada, Australia, and other advanced capitalist countries. In total, about two-thirds of China's outward direct investment in 2012 went to these rich countries, up from just a tenth in 2002. We'll talk more about this later. Another point to consider is that while inward foreign direct investment, IFDI, into China and outward FDI, OFDI, from China to other countries, are both still growing, the rates of growth of OFDI are now much higher than the rates of growth of IFDI. That is, the trend is now for the ratio of outward-bound investment to inward-bound investment to increase, 
In the first four months of 2013, for example, inward FDI into China increased by only 1.21% as compared to a year earlier, while outward FDI from China to other countries increased by 27% over the same period. Section 6. Can new imperialist countries arise in the world today? Sometimes it's argued that given the stranglehold on the world by the existing capitalist imperialist powers, new capitalist imperialist powers cannot possibly arise. However, the facts say otherwise. The original leading capitalist imperialist power was Britain, but during the latter part of the 19th century, the new capitalist imperial powers of the US, Germany, France, and others all arose along with Britain and despite its initial dominance. Early in the 20th century, the new capitalist imperialist power Japan arose, and Russia was also transformed from an old-style imperialist power into a fledgling capitalist imperialist power, though with internal rather than external colonies. Was that the end of the story? Of course not. Other imperialist powers have also developed over this period, and Italy, already an imperialist country by then, invaded Abyssinia, now known as Ethiopia, in 1935-36 and turned it into a colony. Footnote there, Italy was already an imperialist country by World War I and joined the side of the British-French-Russian Entente in large part in order to expand its territory. In 1935 and 36, it conquered Ethiopia, and in 1939, it annexed Albania, which had been a de facto protectorate for decades. Back to the text. Then in the 1950s, the once socialist Soviet Union, when it and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union were captured by a rising new state bourgeoisie from within, also became a new capitalist imperialist country. Mao appropriately called it a social imperialist country, a country still hanging on to the socialist signboard until 1991, but in reality a new imperialist country. Footnote here, this is not the place for any extensive discussion of the social imperialist Soviet Union, nor even to decide when exactly it could be said to have first become an imperialist country. It could be argued that the USSR became an imperialist country as soon as the new bourgeoisie seized control of the CPSU and government in the 1950s, since it already had political dominance over other Eastern European countries and immediately began exploiting them for the benefit of its own new ruling class. Or, as some argue, the Soviet Union only emerged as a full-fledged imperialist country around 1968, when it acted aggressively, invaded Czechoslovakia, and when Brezhnev promulgated his theory of limited sovereignty for the countries the Soviet social imperialists had dominance over. The precise timing of this change is not that important. What is most important for us here is that this development of the Soviet Union as an imperialist power, and along with it its bloc as an imperialist system, did in fact happen. Back to the text. This historical experience demonstrates very clearly that new imperialist powers can in fact arise in the modern era, even in the case of countries that were once actually socialist. It also demonstrates that a country which is partly state capitalist, or even almost entirely so, as the Soviet Union was, can be an imperialist country just as much as one which is organized along the lines of private monopoly capitalism of the Western variety. Although the social imperialist Soviet Union was, alongside the U.S., a superpower, it never replaced the U.S. as the world's most dominant imperialist country. Rising new imperialist countries do not necessarily supplant existing imperialist powers. In 1916, Lenin wrote that, quote, Capitalism is growing with the greatest rapidity in the colonies and in overseas countries. Among the latter, new imperialist powers are emerging, such as Japan. The struggle among the world imperialisms is becoming more acute. Unquote. In the early years of the 20th century, too, the dominant imperialist powers had a stranglehold on the world, and yet it was still possible for new imperialist countries to arise. 
It is a totally unsupported dogma that this cannot happen, and that it cannot have happened in the case of China more recently. In some respects, it's actually easier for a new imperialist power to arise in the post-World War II era, in which capitalist imperialism has become a world system. The export of capital, for example, can now begin without the necessity for a rising imperialist country to first conquer other lands militarily, and then turn them into exclusive colonies, or else to first steal colonies from established imperialist powers through inter-imperialist warfare. One of the objective reasons why the old colonial version of capitalist imperialism had to be replaced by the newer neo-colonial or post-colonial imperialist system was to set up the rules for all imperialist countries, including newly arising ones, to participate in the exploitation of the people of the world, and especially those in the more undeveloped countries. Moreover, the expanded horizon for the international liquidity of capital was a key motive for this new post-World War II imperialist architecture. Section 7 the size of the Chinese economy today. China's economy has rapidly expanded ever since the 1949 revolution, with only a few short-term interruptions. It expanded rapidly during the socialist era, and it has continued to expand rapidly even since China was transformed back into capitalism, though now for the primary benefit of the few and not the many. Footnote there, in particular, China's socialist economy expanded at a very rapid pace during the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, often dated from 1966 through 1976, averaging more than 10% per year. See Mobo Gao, Debating the Cultural Revolution, Do We Only Know What We Believe? And Maurice Meisner, The Deng Xiaoping Era, 1978 to 1994. Even the capitalist rotors themselves had to admit that, except for brief declines during the Great Leap Forward and the first three years of the GPCR, the growth of both industrial and agricultural production during the rest of the Maoist socialist period, 1969 to 1976, was very fast. See the charts on the second page of the article, China's Industry on the Upswing, from Beijing Review, 1984. There's a link here. The later claim of the capitalist rotors that the Cultural Revolution was a, quote, disaster for the economy was an outright lie. Even the brief production declines of the first three years of the GPCR were very rapidly made up for beginning in 1969, and the overall trend line from before the decline and after it was as if the short decline had not even occurred. Back to the text. It's hard to compare the statistics from the two periods, but it's possible that China's economic growth has even speeded up somewhat since the return of capitalism, at least during the last decade or two. Footnote there. Figure 7.1 below in this section, we're not going to be able to show it on the screen, shows that during the first 10 or 15 years of the return to capitalism, the share of China's fraction of world GDP actually declined. But since then, it has zoomed up tremendously. This suggests that China's GDP growth rate in the socialist era was fast, that it may have slowed down relative to the rest of the world for the first part of the new capitalist era, but then it has become very fast again during the past 20 years. Back to the text. Marxists have never denied that, in many circumstances, capitalist economies can rapidly expand. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels emphasize this rapid productive growth potential under capitalism to a degree that even pro-capitalist readers find startling. However, is this still true in the imperialist era? Yes, sometimes it still is. Lenin said that capitalism in the imperialist era is characterized by stagnation and decay, and overall that certainly seems to be correct as the current economic crisis is demonstrating anew. Nevertheless, there was a major world capitalist boom in the quarter century after World War II, and Germany and Japan had especially powerful booms. This was because of the massive destruction of productive capital during that war, 
and the accompanying cancellation of consumer and state debt, which cleared the ground for a new boom. A boom in newly capitalist China was also possible, in part because there was virtually no state and consumer debt load from the socialist era. So in other words, the normal situation under capitalist imperialism is indeed for there to be stagnation and decay, or worse, but this may not apply for a while to new capitalist imperialist countries, nor to countries which have gotten a fresh start because of the massive destruction of capital and debt in a devastating world war, and despite the deaths of millions of people. And commenting here, we were just talking in the last few live streams, and I did an entire video about the return of a 2008-type crash. Basically, I laid out in a video that's about an hour and 40 minutes long my case for the underlying problems of 2008 never having gone away. Basically, there was massive quantitative easing. The Federal Reserve stepped in, pumped tons of cash into the system, which got everything going again and like life support, basically kept things afloat and bought it some time. However, none of the underlying problems were fixed, and all of this loose cash floating around also caused a massive inflationary situation with a gigantic price bubble forming in some of the same sectors, housing, for example, where housing is so overpriced because of all the investors that got cheap, easy money in the last 10 years, buying up everything in sight and jacking the prices way up. The housing transactions, it's completely unaffordable, so the transaction rate has gone down to virtually zero. Now, with job openings starting to fall, unemployment starting to go up, we're in 2023 now, we are going to unfortunately see a lot of working people's lives ruined because when the unemployment rate goes up, a curve which very closely matches the unemployment rate is the mortgage default rate. So that means people giving up their houses, doing panic selling, foreclosures. So a lot more inventory is going to wind up on the market. That's going to drive a crash in prices to happen in the next year or two. And the fallout from that is going to be basically like 2008 again. It's going to take most of the rest of the system down with it. Since all this free money basically caused this problem, they can't really do that again. As it is, we're at $9 trillion of quantitative easing. And the two times that they have tried to get, you know, seven or eight percent of that money back out of the system through quantitative tightening it's caused a crash first there was repo madness in september 2019 then more recently about six months ago there was during quantitative tightening the crash of signature and svb so as soon as they start trying to take any money out they have to come back in and pump more money back in so this seems to be a one-way process so like i said life support they can't seem to take the palliative measures they've been doing any further because it's caused another gigantic bubble even much larger than the first one but you know what would actually fix this oh a gigantic world war so is that around the corner i don't know maybe if they think that that's their best way out of this crisis anyway continuing in the modern part of capitalist imperialism at least from the early 20th century on it has for the most part proven to be quite impossible for economically undeveloped countries to break out of this condition and seriously begin to develop their economies in a major, sustained, and all-round way, except through socialist revolution, as in the case of Russia and China. It's true, as Lenin noted, that the export of capital to economically backward and low-wage areas does serve to promote the development of capitalism there to some degree. But that development remains mostly in the hands of foreign corporations, multinationals, and in a form that serves to primarily promote the extraction of wealth from the undeveloped country. Independent local capitalist development in these countries is choked by the stifling domination of foreign imperialist countries and their multinational corporations. 
However, there have been a very few exceptions to this general rule, which require explanation. A few countries in East Asia, and South Korea most prominently, have managed to develop their economies even under the capitalist system. At the end of World War II, when Korea was split into two countries by the U.S., North Korea was much more developed industrially than the South, which was largely agricultural. But since then, South Korea's economy has developed in a truly major way, and now the country actually qualifies as an advanced capitalist country. It's too far from our central topic to thoroughly explore how this was accomplished, let alone what happened to North Korea. But we believe that the basic explanation is that the two dominant foreign imperialist powers in South Korea, namely the US and Japan, purposely promoted the independent development of a capitalist economy there as part of their geopolitical necessity to halt the advance of Asian communism. For example, Toyota, the Japanese auto company, gave tremendous help to the South Korean corporation Hyundai to build its auto division into a successful car company, even though this meant creating a major competitor to Toyota and the other Japanese auto companies. This sort of foreign tutelage and the limits forced on foreign multinationals operating in South Korea by allowing the South Korean government to establish effective protective tariffs, for example, allowed a national bourgeoisie to emerge in the country and develop its own locally based economy. Comment. So what they're basically saying is that the U.S. and Japan strategically built up capitalism in South Korea, not because they really wanted more competitors, because they just really, you know, find competition so refreshing, etc., but as a weapon in the class struggle. There's a footnote here. The use of means such as protective tariffs may help develop a country's capitalist economy, given that they are allowed by foreign imperialism to establish and maintain those tariffs and other measures. Lenin criticized Bukharin, who promoted protective tariffs, by saying that, quote, no tariff system can be effective in the epoch of imperialism when there are monstrous contrasts between pauper countries and immensely rich countries, unquote. However, Lenin did apparently make his argument in too absolute a form, as the quite exceptional case of South Korea seems to show. In that rare situation, the foreign imperialist powers controlling the country decided that it was actually in their interests to allow local development in South Korea in order to build up a bulwark against communism, and therefore they allowed an effective tariff system to be put in place. Back to the text. Something similar, though on a less impressive scale, was allowed to happen by the U.S. and other imperialist powers in Taiwan and a few other Asian tiger economies, and for the same reason, to build up their economies to try to prevent the spread of, quote, communism. And commenting, they put communism in quotes here in a few places, such as in the South Korea example, to build up a bulwark against, quote, communism, because, well, what they were calling communism wasn't always what we would call communism, and of course, communism per se, or the higher stage of socialism, has not been attained, etc. So anyway, communism in quotes, continuing. But there are serious constraints on allowing this sort of unfettered development generally, since this would have a very negative impact on the profits of the multinational corporations of the major imperialist powers. In any case, the Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s began to show the limits of such capitalist development, and the current, more general crisis is likely bringing the initial, quote, success of this type of capitalist development near to an end. The bigger exception we need to discuss to the general rule that undeveloped or, quote, third world economies cannot develop in a sustained and complete way under capitalism is the case of China itself. How is it possible that China's economy has continued to develop so tremendously since the transformation of socialist China back to capitalism? There are two aspects to the answer to that question. First, China was no longer really, quote, undeveloped at the time of Mao's death. 
On the contrary, it had already made major advances in the independent development of its economy during the period of socialism. Second, and even more important, the new Chinese bourgeoisie, which captured power after Mao's death, was itself independent of foreign imperialist control. In China's case, the necessary political independence to promote the locally based development of its newly capitalist economy only came about because of its earlier socialist revolution and period of socialist development. Footnote here, this is the persuasive position of Fred Engst in his essay, The Rise of China and Its Implications from 2011. Engst argues that this political independence must in turn promote a period of independent economic development. Quote, contrary to neoclassical theory, Chinese development shows that in the stage of imperialism, if a country wants indigenous economic development under capitalism, it first needs to break from imperialist domination so that it can have a period of independent development before entering the worldwide capitalist system. Otherwise, its own economy will be suffocated by the multinationals under the aggression of imperial powers, unquote. We would, however, disagree with the possible implication here that it might make sense for a country attempting to develop to try to first implement a temporary period of socialism and then purposely end it and switch back to capitalism in a supposed stronger position. In other words, using the socialism just to do better capitalism. And quote, development, which again, what is occurring under socialism exactly? Continuing, what happened in China was a specific historical case with its own particularities and is by no means a general recipe for economic development. We think that Fred Angst would agree with us on this point. Back to the text. During this socialist period, there was a complete political break from foreign imperialism, and this political independence in China largely continued even after the restoration of capitalism. In other words, the new ruling class in China was basically a bureaucratic national bourgeoisie, and not a comprador bourgeoisie. Of course, there are some compradors in China, just as there are in every country, but they're not the leading core of the ruling class. Footnote here. In other words, the presence of compradors, agents expressing foreign capital's interests, does not define the social system as comprador, unless these compradors are a ruling core capable of subordinating other national interests to foreign interests. Back to the text. So the notion of some, that further economic development in China could only continue if China remained socialist, was incorrect. In April 1976, while Mao was still alive, a much more sensible view was published in Peking Review. The article recognized that even if the proletariat lost control of the country, the Chinese economy might still develop, but that if it did so, it would, quote, turn out to be modernization of an imperialist or social imperialist type, unquote. And this is exactly what has occurred. So I want to comment here, we need to distinguish the question of development, increasing technology and all of the things that are covered under development from the mode of production. So you have the means of production, which are the equipment and the raw materials and all of that. Then you have the mode of production, which is which class is in charge. Do you have a feudal economy? Do you have a capitalist economy? Do you have a socialist economy? So development can occur in some conditions under any of these modes of production. However, they all eventually have a lifespan and reach the limits of their usefulness, as described in many texts on historical materialism going back to Marx and Engels. So the controversy in China at that time was if China stops being socialist and starts being capitalist, will it continue to develop? Will the economy advance in sort of raw absolute terms, not social terms, but number of goods produced, number of services provided, etc., that sort of development. 
Well, yes. So what actually happened is they did revert from socialism, introduced massive amounts of capitalism, and the economy did continue to develop. It didn't just stagnate and fall apart. So those predictions were inaccurate. So the problem, though, is that the development that is happening is under capitalism. So socially, it is a step backward. So that same raw economic development could be occurring on a socialist basis. But is it? Well, no, it's being done on a capitalist basis. And the reason that I'm making this comment is there's too many voices out there that do not make this distinction. They don't even care about the mode of production or the advancement of socialism. It's purely about this question of development abstracted from the social context and the class struggle. So if you are concerned with moving beyond capitalism and the class struggle and the achievement of socialism and communism, then you can't just look at developing the productive forces indefinitely. That in itself does not get you a step closer to socialism, when clearly socialism was already within China's grasp. They were doing it. So you hear a lot of the biggest defenders and apologists for the restoration of capitalism just talking about development, development, development. But there's no talk of class struggle or what is happening to socialism, what's happening in the proletariat, and so on. Just really want to underline that. All right, continuing. Actually, along those lines, there's a footnote here. And in this connection, it's worth recalling Mao's criticism of Deng Xiaoping. Quote, this person does not grasp class struggle. He has never referred to this key link. Still his theme of white cat, black cat, making no distinction between imperialism and Marxism. Unquote. Back to the text. It did appear to many that with Deng Xiaoping's opening up of the Chinese economy to foreign multinational investment, the new bourgeois ruling class in China had become compradors. But this was a superficial view, a misperception, which didn't get at the essence of the situation. The opening up was in fact a step toward integrating China's largely independent economy into the world capitalist economy, but for the conscious purpose of further promoting China's own national economy and its own bureaucratic national bourgeoisie centered in the Communist Party. However, what that old article in Peking Review said is certainly true. The complete and sustained modernization and development of any economy in the imperialist era can only be done either through socialist revolution or else in very special circumstances in an imperialist manner. In China's case, it was through socialism for a few decades and in the imperialist way since then. Not only has China's economy grown very rapidly in absolute terms over the past six decades, it has even rapidly grown as a percentage of world production, while the other major capitalist imperialist countries, and especially the U.S., have all declined in these percentages. Looking carefully at figure 7.1 on the previous page, we see that over the past half century, the portion of world GDP created in a given year in the U.S. has dropped from over 38% to 22.5%, a very substantial decline. Immediately after World War II, the U.S. share of the capitalist world's total industrial production was 56.4%. Japan's share of world GDP rose steadily until it reached its peak in 1994, and then it began to decline. The shares of world GDP of Germany, France, Britain, and Italy also rose greatly after World War II, but they have now declined noticeably over the last decade and a half. In recent years, only China, and to much smaller extents, Brazil and India, of the major countries shown in this chart, have substantially increased their share of world GDP. In 1990, China was not even in the top 10 countries in terms of world share of GDP, but now it has surpassed Japan, Germany, France, the UK, Italy, and Russia to take the number two spot in the world behind only the US. However, there is a better, 
truer measure of the real share of world production that countries have than what is shown in figure 7.1. This alternative uses not GDP figures translated into dollars on the basis of official currency exchange rates at the time, but rather a translation into dollars based on the equivalent purchasing power of the local currencies within their own country. This is called the purchasing power parity or PPP conversion rate. Figure 7.2 shows what a huge difference it makes if you translate China's GDP into dollars using the PPP conversion rate rather than the currency exchange rate. Either way, China's GDP has been rapidly gaining on the U.S. over the past few decades. But China's economy is still only about half the size of the U.S. economy if nominal GDP comparisons are made, while it is now nearly 80% the size of the U.S. economy if PPP conversion rates are used. Most economists studying the world economy now believe that China's economy will surpass the size of the U.S. economy quite soon. If PPP conversion rates are used, as they really should be, some predictions are that China will surpass the U.S. as early as 2015 or 2016. Even if nominal GDP conversion rates are used, it may only be 5 to 10 years until China's economy surpasses the U.S. So commenting, I did look this up, and now, about 10 years on, this has happened. Current estimates of GDP share by PPP put China at about 18.5%, the USA between 135 and 15.5%, India between about 7 and 9%, and then the fourth largest is Japan, which drops down to between 3 and 4%. All the other countries are less than that. Continuing, another point to consider is that the U.S. economy is artificially inflated in size, because of the grotesque parasitism of the service, and especially the financial services sector. If you look only at the basic core of the economy, like manufacturing, China has now virtually matched the U.S., if it has not already exceeded it. In this graph, this is figure 7.3, and again, if you're not already reading along, the link is in the description, we see that while the U.S. share of world manufacturing value added has, over the past 40 years, dropped from over 26% to around 20%, China's has jumped from around 1% to at least 18%. Moreover, this calculation, once again, was done by translating Chinese figures into U.S. dollars at the prevailing currency exchange rates. If instead, the more truthful PPP conversion rates were used, then China would definitely have already well overtaken the U.S. in its share of world manufacturing value added. Whether China has the largest overall economy in the world in terms of GDP, as it almost certainly will have soon, or only the second largest economy in the world, as it already has at present, can it be seriously imagined that a country with a capitalist economy of this magnitude and importance, and in the capitalist imperialist era, when capitalism itself has become capitalist imperialism, can be anything but a capitalist imperialist country? Note that almost all the other major capitalist economies in the world today, including not only the U.S., but also Japan, Germany, France, Britain, Italy, and Russia, are clearly imperialist countries. How could China, the second largest and the fastest growing capitalist economy, not also be an imperialist country in this capitalist imperialist era? How could you even call this era the imperialist stage of capitalism if one of the most important capitalist countries is not considered to be an imperialist country? It just wouldn't make any sense. We should not leave this topic about the size and rapid growth of the Chinese economy without briefly mentioning the fact that a very large part of China's population has benefited either very little or else not at all from this enormous growth. As with capitalist growth in any country, and certainly for the world as a whole, the new wealth created has mostly gone to the few. 
what was once in the Maoist era one of the most egalitarian countries in the world, has become one of the most unequal, with the contrast between rich and poor becoming ever more extreme. Economists have a measure they call the Gini coefficient to measure inequality. A Gini coefficient of zero means that there's no inequality whatsoever, while a coefficient of one means the most extreme inequality possible, one person having everything and everyone else having nothing at all. So the lower the Gini coefficient, the more equal the society. In the world today, there are no truly egalitarian countries, but the Gini coefficient for personal income in Sweden is 0.23 and in Germany it's 0.27. For a highly unequal country like the US with its dozens of billionaires and many millions of poor people, the Gini coefficient in 2009 was a very large 0.468. In China, the Gini coefficient has been getting bigger and bigger for decades. In 2001 it was 0.4, in 2007 it was 0.415, and in 2012 it reached 0.474, which is even worse than the US, despite including the notorious 1%, or the very rich, alongside the mass of people struggling to get by. Thus, the massive and rapid economic growth in China is mostly benefiting the ruling bourgeoisie, which is getting ever richer. It is true that there has developed a fairly large middle class, but nevertheless, and as the growing Gini coefficient demonstrates, this is a very secondary process to the overall continuing polarization of wealth. Moreover, in China there is the continuing exploitation of the working class, when they can find jobs at all. There is quite massive and growing unemployment. There is the super-exploitation in factories of many tens of millions of migrant workers from rural areas and serious discrimination against them. There are very widespread land grabs by local government officials and real estate developers. There are many forms of continuing discrimination against women. There is national oppression and discrimination against minorities. There's the fact that genuine unions are illegal, as are most democratic rights such as free speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of assembly. There's a growing environmental catastrophe in progress, with air and water pollution reaching crisis levels. There are millions of people without access to health care and other social benefits such as sick pay and retirement income. So when we speak of the Chinese boom, we should always remember that no matter how big and fast it is, it is for the most part not for the benefit of the hundreds of millions of workers, peasants, and ordinary people in China. That is simply impossible under capitalism. Section 8. Monopoly and Finance Capital in China Earlier, we quoted Lenin's definition, which says in part that, quote, imperialism is capitalism in that stage of development in which the dominance of monopolies and finance capital, which is again the merger of bank capital and industrial capital, has established itself, unquote. So, have monopolies and finance capital established dominance in China today? They certainly have. And moreover, this overall dominance is not by foreign monopolies and foreign finance capital, but clearly by Chinese monopolies and Chinese finance capital. Footnote here, we should note, however, that since Lenin's day, a new term has been introduced, oligopoly, which is, strictly speaking, more correct than monopoly, which often implies total or complete monopoly. Oligopoly is semi-monopoly, or a looser form of monopoly. In other words, a situation where a small number of producers control the capitalist market for some commodity and limit their competition, generally just to matters of styling and advertising. So in other words, the number of producers is small, but it's not necessarily one. Back to the text. During the Mao era, when China was a socialist country, industrial production was consolidated and centrally directed through overall socialist planning. When Deng Xiaoping and his cohorts transformed China back into capitalism after Mao's death, all these industries initially remained state-owned. The economy was, to begin with, 
almost entirely state capitalist. Over time, and especially during the 1990s, many of these state-owned enterprises, or SOEs, were privatized, and many additional private companies and corporations were established and grew. And with the opening up to foreign investment, many foreign corporations also began to set up factories and operations in China, mostly for the export of commodities produced with cheap Chinese labor. What this has all meant is that in the new capitalist era, state capitalism in China has been considerably, though still only partially, transformed into private monopoly capitalism. Of course, state capitalism itself is a form of monopoly capitalism in the general sense, and even a more concentrated and further monopolized form of it. And even if China had retained near-total state capitalism, as the Soviet Union did in its last 35 years, it would have still been an imperialist country. But the fact that China has partially switched over to Western-style private monopoly capitalism has made its form of capitalist imperialism look more similar to that in the US, Europe, and Japan. Even though China has been a capitalist country for decades now, as of 2012, SOEs, or again state-owned enterprises, still make up about half of the economy in terms of assets owned and about one-third in terms of value-added production. About 20% of Chinese employees work at these SOEs down from 60% as recently as 1998. There is a chart there, so that's a precipitous drop from 60% to 20% from 1998 to 2012. Just 14 years. However, it should be understood that these many remaining Chinese state-owned enterprises, though they do in fact constitute a type of state capitalism from a formal perspective, now actually operate much more as if they were privately owned monopoly corporations. Some of the first significant steps in this direction were taken in the economic readjustment and reforms of 1979, when SOEs were, quote, granted some decision-making powers, such as over the distribution of profits, unquote. A different sort of bourgeois reform of SOEs, beginning in the early years of Deng Xiaoping's return to power after Mao's death, was the dismantling of the, quote, iron rice bowl. In the Maoist era, workers and state enterprises were guaranteed permanent employment status, an eight-hour day, an eight-grade wage scale in which workers could move up through seniority, free medical benefits, pensions, paid maternity and sick leave, and subsidized food, housing, and child care. With the return of capitalism, all these benefits have been stripped away and are no longer obligations of SOEs. One of the motives of the new bourgeois ruling class for closing down so many SOEs, other than low profitability, was the strong outrage of the workers to the loss of these benefits and the growth of serious labor unrest because of this. In some cases, the government just had no choice except to shut down some enterprises entirely, given their exposed and hated new management policies. Another big step in changing SOEs to be more like private corporations was made with the new regulations for SOEs introduced in May 1984, which stated, among many other things, that, quote, businesses have the right to produce whatever is needed or is in short supply after fulfilling their state plans and orders, unquote. Set prices themselves within ranges, choose their own suppliers, decide their own staffing, hiring and firing, adopt any wage system they like, including piecework, etc., and in the decades since then, the management of SOEs has time after time been granted ever freer latitude to operate their corporations pretty much as they wish, and focusing primarily on the production of profits. The biggest change, of course, occurred when definite state production plans were abandoned with the shift to a market economy. While capitalist China today still has loose overall five-year plans to help coordinate its economic development, these plans no longer specify exactly what goods each SOE should produce, or how many of each commodity, what the prices should be, etc. 
On the contrary, these SOEs are now nearly as free as private corporations are to make their own decisions about what and how much to produce, how much to charge, when and where to expand, etc. It's now the dictates of the capitalist marketplace, which are the primary determiners of what SOEs produce, not any socialist production planning, and further emphasis is continually being put on allowing markets to play the, quote, decisive role in the allocation of resources. Footnote there, this decisive role for markets is the terminology used in the communique of the third plenum of the 18th Central Committee in November 2013. Previously, the market was described as merely the basic determiner of the allocation of resources. The change in terminology, though slight, was meant to put yet further emphasis on market forces. See the party plenum. Everybody who loves Mr. Xi says yes in The Economist, November 2013. Back to the text. Moreover, in China, even privately owned monopoly capitalist corporations are under somewhat more state and party direction, or interference as they often view it, than occurs in Western capitalist countries. Of course, in the capitalist imperialist era, there has been a partial merger of the corporations in the state everywhere, to varying degrees, as Lenin pointed out. Footnote there, Lenin refers to, quote, the beginnings of state-controlled capitalist production, combining the colossal power of capitalism with the colossal power of the state into a single mechanism and bringing tens of millions of people within the single organization of state capitalism. This is from his article, War and Revolution, May 1917. However, it should be remembered that the role of the state in directly guiding the capitalist economies of the major imperialist countries tremendously increased during World War I, and that after the war was over, this direct role was severely cut back again. Moreover, the term state capitalism came to have a qualitatively different and deeper sense once the formerly socialist Soviet Union became state capitalist in the 1950s. Nevertheless, there are any number of mechanisms by which private enterprise and the state are blended together even in the West. For example, there's the fact that corporate wealth and the rich and their media largely determine who gets elected to political office. There's the fact that corporate lobbyists largely determine the details of new laws. There's government regulation of corporations, direct and indirect, such as through tax laws, and also regulatory capture, wherein corporations supposedly being regulated by government agencies gain control over the regulatory bodies, either through bribes or otherwise. And there is the revolving door syndrome, or cronyism, whereby government officials or even industry regulators become corporate managers and vice versa. There's a couple of links there that they put. You can see this also in a major way in the agribusiness sector between the head of companies like Monsanto and then the associated regulatory agencies, where just the head of one becomes the head of the other, and they go back and forth, hence the revolving door. Back to the text. So the difference between SOEs and private corporations in present-day capitalist China is not nearly as great as one might imagine. Both types of formal ownership are tools for the exploitation of the Chinese working class by the ruling capitalist class. And both types of formal ownership represent the partial merger of the capitalist state with semi-independent units of production, though to somewhat different degrees. One important reason why the state and party in China have more influence over private capitalist corporations than is common in other capitalist imperialist countries is that the owners and managers of these private corporations are often themselves members of the Communist Party. A very large number of such red capitalists have joined the party over the past dozen years. Footnote here, in 2001, the General Secretary of the Communist Party of China, Jiang Zemin, lifted the ban on capitalists joining the Communist Party. The ideological justification for this move was his theory of the three represents, 
i.e. that the Communist Party should represent not only the workers and the peasants, but also a third group, which included businessmen, professionals, and others. The Communist Party of China planned to admit 200,000 managers or owners of large or medium-sized private businesses as new party members by 2002. Many more such red capitalists have been admitted since then, though the figures have not been released, presumably because they're politically sensitive. Source here, Bruce Dixon, Red Capitalists in China, 2003. Back to the text. A second group of red capitalists were already in the party when they became capitalists. In 1992, the party began encouraging its members to start their own private business operations. This is what became known as Xiahai, or plunging into the sea of private enterprise. These Xiahai capitalists were acting on Deng Xiaoping's well-known admonition that to get rich is glorious, and they have generally kept their membership in the Communist Party in order to maintain their political connections and influence. As of 2002, roughly one-fifth of China's private entrepreneurs were already members of the party, and two-thirds of them were Xiaohai capitalists. Some of China's biggest red capitalists now appear on the Forbes list of the world's billionaires. With the opening up to foreign investment in China, foreign multinationals quickly came to generate a very large percentage of the manufacturing production in China that was exported to other countries. Indeed, one of the primary purposes of this opening up was to foster this development. In 1995, exports from foreign-funded enterprises in China were 31.51% of total exports. In 2003, they reached 54.84% of total exports, and in 2008, they topped out at 55.25% of total Chinese exports. This domination of Chinese exports by foreign-funded enterprises led some people to erroneously conclude that foreign multinationals were dominating the entire Chinese economy. There are several things to consider in coming to understand why this is simply not the case. First, since 2008, while the value of exports by foreign-funded enterprises has continued to rise, the percentage of total exports coming from foreign-funded enterprises has been gradually falling. Chinese government statistics showed that this percentage had fallen to just below 50% in 2012. Moreover, while exports from SOEs in 2012 dropped by 4.1% from a year earlier, and exports from foreign-funded enterprises rose by 2.8%, the rise in exports from privately-owned Chinese companies increased by a much larger 21.1%. The trend now is therefore for locally-owned private Chinese companies to take over an ever-larger part of the export market. Second, Many of what are counted as foreign-funded enterprises in Chinese statistics are not really foreign. In particular, Hong Kong-based companies are included in the foreign-funded category, even though Hong Kong has actually been part of China since 1997. Moreover, Hong Kong is by far the largest single source of, quote, inward foreign direct investment into China, accounting for $456.2 billion, or 41%, of accumulated, quote, foreign inward direct investment as of 2010. This compares to an accumulated FDI from the U.S. of only $78.7 billion, or 7.1% of the cumulative total as of 2010. Many people have somehow gotten the idea that the Chinese economy is dominated by Western imperialist countries such as the U.S., Britain, and Germany, but it just isn't so. Even if you add together the accumulated inward FDI as of 2010 from the US, Britain, Germany, France, and Japan, it only comes to $197.4 billion, which is much less than half of that from Hong Kong alone. And there is also quite a bit of investment from Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, and even tiny Macau, which is also now part of China. 
none of which can possibly be considered as a foreign power capable of bossing China around or controlling its economy. Third, even the export component of the Chinese economy is itself declining in importance over time. The Chinese government is making an ever more determined effort to reduce its economy's reliance on exports, and major changes already have been made in this direction. The exports of goods fell from 38% of China's GDP in 2007 to just 26% in 2012. The value of Chinese exports continues to rise, but the internal Chinese economy is growing much faster. This is why the percentage of Chinese exports as a part of total GDP is falling so fast. Therefore, the notion that foreign imperialist countries and their multinational corporations dominate the Chinese economy is quite erroneous, as is the sometimes accompanying notion that foreign imperialism controls China politically. Things are even clearer and more obvious when we look at the financial heights of the Chinese capitalist economy. All the big banks are under tight control by the government and party. As the British ruling class magazine, The Economist, noted in reference to China, quote, the country's biggest financial institutions are so closely held by the state that they are, in effect, arms of the treasury, unquote. Four of the ten largest banks in the world are now Chinese, including the biggest of them all, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, ICBC, which has assets of $2.8 trillion. The other three are the China Construction Bank, $2.2 trillion in assets, the Bank of China, $2 trillion, and the Agricultural Bank of China, $2.1 trillion. These banks are the core of Chinese finance capital and are under careful and attentive direction by the government and party. Quote, the sheer size of these institutions is breathtaking. ICBC and ABC have over 400,000 employees each, nearly as many as Volkswagen, the world's biggest car maker. ICBC has over 4 million corporate clients. CCB has some 14,000 branches, unquote. One Western book about China's financial sector and representing the views of foreign financial capitalists laments that China's, quote, central government has unshakable control of the sector, unquote, adding that, quote, foreign banks hold at best little more than 2% of total financial assets. And despite the undeniable economic opening of the past 30 years and the WTO agreement notwithstanding, China's financial sector remains overwhelmingly in Beijing's hands, unquote. The big four banks are led by senior figures in the Communist Party hierarchy, quote, with bosses shuttling easily between banks and regulatory agencies, unquote. This state control of the big Chinese banks is very important in many ways. It's one of the primary mechanisms that allows the government and the party to supervise the entire economy and to arrange for stronger investment in the parts of the economy it chooses to strengthen or promote. And loans to SOEs have been especially promoted. This is one of the reasons that the state capitalist sector of the Chinese economy has remained as large as it is. This sort of overall control of the economy by the financial sector is true to a large extent in all imperialist countries in the capitalist imperialist era. And it's the reason that this financial sector is at the very center of what is called the, quote, commanding heights of the economy. Footnote. The very term commanding heights of the economy comes from notes prepared by Lenin in November 1922 for a speech at the Fourth Congress of the Comintern. Back to the text. This is partly why Leninists so strongly stress the concept of financial capital. But in China, this financial command is not in the hands of Wall Street profiteers, as it is to a considerable extent in the U.S., but it's instead directly in the hands of the ruling committee of the Chinese bureaucratic national bourgeoisie centered in the Communist Party of China. Nevertheless, these giant Chinese banks are themselves extremely profitable, to the point of being the great envy of other major banks around the world. ICBC alone had pre-tax profits of nearly $50 billion in 2012. 
In late 2012, China's four largest banks reported a combined third quarter profit of 150 billion yuan, or $30 billion, almost triple the amount made by the top four U.S. banks during that same period. Quote, bank profits as a share of China's economic output equaled nearly 3% last year, 2012, whereas the highest ratio achieved in recent decades by American banks was only 1% of GDP in 2006, unquote. And by the way, there's a lot of things quoted here that don't necessarily have the source. Get the text. It's all in the end notes. Continuing, following the path of the Western world's giant banks in this age of financial capitalism and globalization, these giant Chinese banks are now expanding their operations globally. There have been obstacles in doing this in many countries because these state-owned Chinese banks do not follow all Western banking standards and do not wish to fully open their books to foreign eyes. However, Chinese banks are making progress in sidestepping such difficulties. On a trip to China in October 2013, George Osborne, Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced an agreement to allow Chinese state-owned banks to operate in London by classifying them as branches rather than subsidiaries, and thus avoiding rigorous scrutiny. International trading in the Chinese yuan has tripled over the past three years to $120 billion per day, and London wants to secure its position as the center of this huge and growing trading in Chinese currency, and also in Chinese bonds, by allowing Chinese banks to operate there. The response of foreign imperialists to the rapid rise of these big Chinese banks has been in two opposite and conflicting directions. On the one hand, they're impressed, envious, especially of the big profits, and fearful of this new competition. In a review of one very recent book glorifying American giant banks and strongly opposing any attempt to cut them down to size so that they're no longer too big to fail, the economist summarizes one of the author's primary conclusions, quote, trimming them, the big U.S. banks, he frets, may lead to a point when America can no longer be called a superpower and would be handing the baton to China, unquote. On the other hand, a popular theme in Western bourgeois economic literature is that China's banks are in a, quote, fragile condition. These banks are viewed as being too much under CPC political control and thus too ready to make loans to Chinese companies that those companies will not be able to pay back. There is, of course, some truth to this, but what these critics fail to understand is that absolutely all capitalist financial systems everywhere do this very same sort of thing, and they must do so. Bourgeois economists cannot admit, and few of them can even understand, that the creation of credit bubbles is absolutely essential to every capitalist boom in every country. The reason is simple. Capitalism inherently involves the extraction of surplus value from the working class. Since the workers are not paid for all the value they produce, they cannot possibly buy back all that they produce, unless they're granted ever larger amounts of credit. If consumer credit is expanded, then the market for commodities is expanded. And in that case, the expanding market makes it possible for corporations to use part of their surplus value, or else to borrow from banks, to build more factories to sell to that expanding market. Footnote. The major variation on this theme is when consumer credit can no longer be expanded fast enough. In that case, in the capitalist imperialist era, governments themselves take on the necessary debt by either borrowing money from the rich or else just by printing it. These Keynesian deficits can prolong booms for an additional period, though in the end, the joint debt bubble of consumer and government debt must still eventually pop. Back to the text. And this is exactly what every capitalist boom amounts to. In reality, it's a house of cards which must eventually and inevitably collapse in the form of an overproduction crisis brought to a head by one or more financial crises. And yes, this will inevitably happen in China too, at some point. 
But because there was no internal or external debt in China during the socialist period, the room for the creation and expansion of credit in the new capitalist era has been much greater than in the US, Europe, or Japan, which were already wallowing in mountains of debt built up over the decades since World War II. This is the primary reason why China has so far been much less affected by the world overproduction crisis and its attendant financial crises. They simply have had the ability to increase their credit debt load in a much greater and faster way. Thus, in relation to the sizes of their economies, the stimulus packages during the 2008-09 global financial crisis were much greater and much more effective in China than elsewhere. A related view common in the Western bourgeois economic literature about the Chinese financial system is that it has been leading to a, quote, gross misallocation of capital. Well, of course, from a Marxist point of view, this is also inevitable under capitalism, and there have been many especially absurd examples which can be pointed to. In the U.S. in the late 1990s, for example, there was the so-called new economy, or dot-com boom, wherein there were massively disproportionate, totally unwise investments in internet companies, some of which never made a profit at all. Many billions of dollars were lost in such foolishness. Following that collapse in the recession of 2000 to 2001, a new wave of misallocation of capital in the U.S. began in what turned out to be a major housing bubble and the securitization of bundles of subprime mortgages. That too collapsed, or partially so, in 2008 and 2009. A similar sort of thing happened in Japan in the late 1980s, with the grotesque real estate bubble that collapsed in the early 1990s. What indeed is a capitalist boom, if not a gross misallocation of capital? which only becomes fully clear when the bubble bursts. The Chinese financial system does, in fact, have many problems which are continually building up, just as do those of all the other capitalist imperialist countries. There is certainly a housing bubble building up in China, for example. Footnote, this housing bubble in China has been building up for many years. In 2013, the sales of new homes exceeded $1 trillion for the first time. The total value of new home sales rose by 27% from a year earlier, while average new home prices in December 2013 rose by 16% in Beijing from a year earlier, by 18% in Shanghai, and by 20% in Guangzhou and Shenzhen. Back to the text. There is a shadow banking system in China, just as there is in the US, though it has a somewhat different character. There is quite a lot of overproduction presently evident in China as elsewhere. There are some new ghost cities with thousands of apartments and offices currently unoccupied. All these things and many more are true. However, this is in the very nature of capitalism for there to be a lot of economic anarchy of this sort and for there to be expanding debt and asset bubbles during boom times. None of this shows that Chinese capitalist imperialism is fundamentally different from other capitalist imperialist countries. That's the end of section eight. We're going to leave it there for today. There are actually two more blocks of eight, so a total of 24 chapters. This video is already two hours long, so I'm going to post this, and then we're going to continue with two more parts of equal length. So thanks for listening, and thanks to the patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen, head to patreon.com slash socialismforall or buymeacoffee.com slash socialismforall. You can contribute for as little as $2 or more. Every donation is encouraging. They're also materially helpful, so thank you very much for those. And whether or not you're a patron, engagement counts. So like, share, subscribe, leave a comment, even if it's just thanks or good video. All of that helps to boost these videos in this channel in the YouTube algorithm, which helps to spread this content to more and more increasingly class-conscious workers who have questions about what's going on in the world and what is class struggle and how do we fight back 
in our class interests as workers against capitalist exploitation and oppression of us. We are right now living through a time of major crisis for capitalism, and we have to agitate, educate, and organize so that the working class can wage effective struggle to end the system and then to build socialism. That struggle takes many forms. Most of them are in real life, so look around in your area, your city, county, or state. There are a number of left-wing groups that you can connect with. Not all of them are Marxist, but some of them are going to be worth getting to know anyway and letting them get to know you, networking, and then doing things like labor union support, tenant union support, working on ballot initiatives to raise the minimum wage or do other worker protections and so on. As this crisis deepens, the struggle is only going to get more intense and we have to make sure that class-conscious workers are organized and ready to take on these important fights where we live. Thanks again, and we'll see you in the next video.